far past the southern edge of Orlando, in that middle space on Interstate 4 through the middle of Florida, there isn't much to see along the side of the road. There are cow pastures stretching for miles, massive hotels taking up the horizon, restaurants advertising each and every exit. Once you reach Lakeland and Tampa, nearly every mile provides some new sight as you make your way west, but in that great empty middle space, one sight really stands out. A white airplane sitting on the side of a hill. Painted in blue along the sides and the underside of the wings are the words, Fantasy of Flight. When I was young and I would take trips to the Gulf Coast, I would wait to see this plane as I passed. Back then, there was a mannequin in an old-fashioned pilot uniform, all brown leather and metal straps. The mannequin was suspended by ropes under the plane, as if he had crash-landed and was trying to escape, but got stuck. I remember hearing when I was young that people used to call the police because they were concerned about the man supposedly trapped on the plane. The plane itself is a Douglas DC-3. It was a civilian propeller plane developed during the Second World War. Aesthetically, it's very simple. A cylindrical main cavity, two long, wide wings with propellers at the inner corners. In the years before World War II, it was a commercial passenger plane, one of the most prominent in the business. When the war broke out, they were used for military transportation, but remained primarily the predecessor to the modern air transit vehicle. According to Boeing, many are still in use, having served over a century of service to the United States. The oldest of these planes is in Florida, down in Punta Gorda, where it has been restored. Another sits on the side of I-4 in Central Florida, advertising fantasy of flight. A few years ago, the plane was changed from its former display where it appeared to have crashed to a proud, upright position. It is, however, not the only interesting roadside view along this stretch of road. There are also a series of oil derricks set in an upright position with brand names on them, one that reads Green Swamp Oil and Gas Company Limited. This is a reference to a nearby wilderness preserve made up of about 50,000 acres of swampland that connects to several large river basins. Another oil derrick noticeably reads, Orlampa Oil and Gas Limited. It is only a few feet from a bright green sign facing the highway that reads, Thank you, DOT, for paving the way to Orlampa's future. For nearly two decades, this area has borne the name of Orlampa, thanks to one man who sees this area as more than just an exit off the interstate. His name is Kermit Weeks. He is the owner of the Orlampa brand. He put up those oil derricks, the signs, and the plane that bears the name of his attraction right off the exit, Fantasy of Flight. He has dreams for Orlampa, Fantasy of Flight, in Florida, big ones. If he has his way, his legacy will extend beyond his lifetime. And all of that begins right here, off exit 44. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This week, Kermit Weeks, Fantasy of Flight, and the Potential of Florida. I'm joined by Gabrielle Khaleesi, a reporter from the Tampa Bay Times, who I have had the pleasure to work with on this story. I had never heard of the word Orlampa before you mentioned it to me. I did, however, know of plane on the side of the road because like any other person from the Tampa Bay area who's driven over to Orlando I've passed by that plane um and I love a good 
roadside attraction or oddity. Um, and I, I love the story of, you know, not only is this plane there and has been there for a while, but it used to be just so distracting because of the mannequin that was dangling out of it. And so to find out that that was connected to something much bigger, you know, kind of our invitation down the rabbit hole was just such a delight. It was so surreal to just like be in the same room as him, especially because, you know, we call him, we have to get buzzed in to this like abandoned museum compound. <laughs> and then to go inside and it's like this big echoey, you know, former like museum. It was like a carcass of what had been. And we're sitting in there in the, the former um, Compass Rose Museum restaurant. And he's just going he's wearing his fantasy of flight polo shirt his hair is tied back with the fantasy of flight clip well i think we knew we were sort of off to the races when when he i i really got excited because he said a line that he had said to you before and i and we'd seen in a couple of his interviews before where he said one day tampa and orlando will realize they're merely suburbs of orlando that is kermit weeks the owner and mind behind the attraction known as fantasy of flight that's actually where we are. Gabrielle, Kermit, and myself have set up in the tall atrium of Fantasy of Flight's main museum. While this building has been closed since 2014, his hangar with its attached gift shop across the parking lot opens intermittently throughout the seasons to allow guests to see his massive historic airplane collection. Here, in the old museum, the iconography of his collection still reigns. The floor of the atrium is designed to be a compass. Classic Art Deco decals line the walls, along with murals of planes soaring into the sunset. Every once in a while, through the tall windows, as golden hour sets in on the Florida horizon, a biplane flies low to the ground. Kermit wears a polo with one of his copyrights, Light the Spark Within. He has a clip in his ponytail with the symbol of Fantasy of Flight, three slightly curved lines arranged to look like a flying bird. I've been in this building before. I visited a few years back when it was still regularly open to celebrate Father's Day. We were sitting in that same atrium now, with high windows that echo our conversations back to us. But I knew that beyond the doors behind us was a collection of airplanes unrivaled by any other private collection in the world. Well, this facility here was only ever initially designed to be my shop, okay? And basically, uh, I thought, well, because there was certain amounts, of, there's two runways out there. There's a short one and a long one. The long one's almost a mile. And that's to bring in the bigger, heavier, faster airplanes. Um, we have lake access to fly vintage seaplanes in their natural environment, which I don't believe anybody on the planet has, you know, from a museum point of view. But I am out of that business, trust me. Kermit says that a lot through our conversation, that fantasy of flight as a museum is a thing of the past. He's run his museum in some form or another for 35 years, collecting his planes from other collections and even restoring grounded planes back to flying condition. He's 66 now, and he tells us that while he will always love his planes and what they've done for him, he has found something new, his next step, his act three, as he calls it. And in the past, I realized very quickly, I love old airplanes. I, you know, it's a passion of mine, blah, 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 whatever. But it took me a long time to build, uh, to understand that most people don't really care about airplanes, okay? old airplanes, okay? And, you know, all great stories come in three acts. So what I, what I 
everything comes in threes. There's a fascinating meaning behind a true trinity, actually. And basically, uh, so I saw the Weeks Air Museum, I opened in 1985 in Miami, which was a not-for-profit charitable deal, you know, and it was kind of a cool way to share my passion and good fortune with people and stuff. His three-act story begins long before he was born, about 30 years earlier. In 1924, his grandfather, Louis George Weeks, began working as a geologist for Standard Oil, the company created by Henry Flagler and John Rockefeller decades earlier. Previously, he himself was a pilot before going to school to become an oil purveyor. He worked in New York for much of his career until retiring at the age of 65 in 1958. In retirement, he used his work as a consultant to aid other companies in finding oil. A company named Broken Hill Proprietary hired him. His work was so beneficial to them that he asked for 2.5% royalty. He got it, and the funds that came from that deal supported his grandson decades later to pursue his own dream as a historic airplane collector. Kermit Weeks has lived in Florida since he was 13, growing up in Miami where he would eventually open his first museum, his Act One. His passion for airplanes began with a love for the old song about Snoopy and the Red Baron. After the turn of the century, in the clear blue skies over Germany, came a roar and a thunder men had never heard, like the screaming sound of a big warbird. Once in South Florida, he had an opportunity to begin flying model remote control airplanes. It started him on his hands-on construction work and gave him a sense of how to build and remodel crafts. It went to practical use a few years later when he built from scratch a World War I-era biplane called the Der Jaeger D9. He was a young man graduating high school and on his way to college, but he would always return to the little yellow biplane. he became an aerobic gymnast in high school, and though he found himself enjoying the work, especially the jumping heights he would reach, studying aerospace was always his path. When his grandfather made his fortune later in life, Kermit was given an opportunity to focus on his passion for historic planes in a way he never had before. He took his passion for flying into airplane gymnastic competitions, where he rarely rose to competing success. He knew he had potential, but he couldn't quite find it. The stress on him, even when he was winning, was beginning to leave an impact on his mental state. When an opportunity came to bring a collection of historic planes together, he took it and opened Weeks Air Museum at an airport in Miami in 1985. So anyway, this is just a big hangar full of airplanes. Uh, you know, this is what people see. They used to have signs and you know videos and whatever. Right now, we're just cramming airplanes in here. How many planes did you say are in here right now? <laughs> I don't know, there's uh, over 165 in the collection. In this big hangar full of planes, Kermit takes Gabrielle and I around the pathways of the central building of this museum. Back when the museum was open on a regular basis, before it transitioned into its current form in 2014, this hangar was really the main attraction. After passing through the lobby, the museum would guide guests through decade upon decade of American aeronautic history, from the invention of flight through the World Wars 
to Korea in the 1960s. Once emerging from the museum, you would arrive in this massive room with planes of all shapes and size, colorful and intricate and brilliant. Little signs sit by each plane describing the origin not just of the plane in a historical context, but how Kermit himself brought this exact plane to this spot in the middle of Florida. He's often crisscrossing the country, finding new pieces for the collection. In the current version of the museum, in the smaller hangar across the way, it's still like this, with tour guides leading you around the collection. But it's a very strange hangar the way that it is, because it's not like a curated experience through the lens of anything other than Kermit's experience and what the planes are in relationship to him and his career and how he acquired it. The little museum open today still brings visitors, but Kermit isn't particularly fond of it. It's just a stepping stone for now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's just gagged me boring. And the only reason that's open over there is to keep my trademarks going and my sign on the interstate. I mean, that's just like, that is not what I want to be. That's just what I'm forced to be now when I'm in the development of what I'm about to create. Today in the old museum, Kermit is our tour guide. And there's an almost nonchalant tone in his voice. That is a reconstructed early plane model. There is a plane that used to be owned by Howard Hughes. This plane has been repainted to resemble the iconic Tuskegee Airmen planes. He rushes past huge pieces of aerospace history with flippancy. He's used to it. He's flown them for hours, and he's told their stories. They're just part of the job. They're his co-workers. In this historic plane community, Kermit is an important figure. He restores planes and collects them, and nationwide, he is known for his level of expertise. His collection is still growing. He points us to a plane near the front doors, and he tells us that he flew it back from Arizona just a few days ago. So I literally, I just flew this back from Sedona, Arizona. It took me five days, because there's not a lot of daylight. I could only get three legs a day in, so I've flying 200-mile legs, and you know, open cockpit, froze my ass off in the mornings. And so I just took my little girl flying in this. This little crap. And so this will be one of our, we're gonna do airplane rides and stuff that'll be part of the, you know, part of the offerings. But I've flown pretty much everything in here. I've flown this, you know, flown this. You've flown this? Yeah. What was that yeah, like? There's a, there's a great, if you go to my YouTube video and yeah, look yeah. up Curtis Pusher, there is a great video Kermit refers to a plane called the Curtis Pusher, made of bamboo and linen, dating back to 1911. He has videos of himself flying this plane, as well as many others on his personal YouTube page, which is very popular. He uploads episodes weekly, sometimes plane stories, sometimes him waxing poetic on his life and adventures. He's even been sharing updates from his quarantine due to the pandemic. But the main feature is always the planes. Back when the museum was in regular operation, he would take these planes out all the time, ripping through the sky in planes that have been in the air off and on for a century. From above, as the crafts ascend into the sky, they have quite a view of the surrounding area. Southwest of Fantasy of Flight is Florida Polytechnic University, with its iconic white alligator-shaped central facility visible from the highway. To the northeast is Polk City, incorporated in 1925 and the beginning of the Van Fleet State Trail which stretches into the nearby Green Swamp. Surrounding Fantasy of Flight itself is only a few notable features, but they're hard to miss. 
there is a mobile home park just off the interstate that pushes against Kermit's property. There is a lakeside summer camp called Camp Gilead. There is a small meeting place for an RC plane club that leases land from Kermit. When I visited, the older men who sat in the shade proudly showed me their homemade model planes, pointing out design details and historic inspiration. There was once a field full of citrus trees. Some, however, were uprooted, laying out to be baked in the Florida sun. Kermit has since taken them all down. This land is owned by Kermit, as is much of the land around here. Along that central road, far out from Fantasy of Flight, there is an abandoned citrus packing building. A water tower overgrown with foliage reads Orlampa Citrus. That is just one of the many copyrights that Kermit Weeks owns. Many of them can be found on t-shirts and hats that are sold in his gift shop on his property. The gift shop itself is just like the gift shop of any ride that you would get off of at Disney, where it's like the entire store is devoted to one person or one thing or one concept. And for this, it was like just baffling to see how many things this man had trademarked and how many things that he'd been able to put his face on, even though the product that he's advertising is sort of in this in-between state, you know, where half of it is already too late to see because you can't go to the old fantasy of flight and the other half hasn't even happened yet. In the shop, you can also find a rum that he has created, copies of his self-produced documentary called The Wizard of Orlampa, a CD of short airplane history stories, along with several children's books that Kermit has written. One of them, called Austin the Ostrich, tells the story of an ostrich that dreams of flying. By all accounts, it is a crystallization of Kermit's entire worldview. Through our conversation, the word that came up the most for him was potential. He said it in reference to himself, in reference to his planes, in reference to me and Gabrielle, and in reference to the very land where we stood, Orlampa. Which brings us to Kermit's Act 3. Our BHAG, by the way, Big Area Audition School, is to become, well, first of all, what I hope Orlampa is, is a focal point on the planet for unleashing human potential and self-discovery, okay? But our BHAG is to light a spark that will spread across the world and inspire humanity to take the next step on its journey. In one of his offices throughout the hangar, he pulls Gabrielle and me over to a tall table where he splays out a huge book stuffed with full-color concept art of everything he hopes Orlampa will be. When Hurricane Andrew struck in 1992, Kermit was already planning his move to the place he now calls home. He named it Orlampa after its obvious neighbors, Orlando and Tampa, and saw that his new attraction, Fantasy of Flight, could be the focal point of a brand new city in the middle of the state. Weeks Air Museum was suffering serious damage from the hurricane, so he naturally moved himself here. He tells us he felt something, something that felt right, something that was ripe with what else but potential. So I was trying to figure out where the potential was, and the potential was in the fact that it wasn't about airplanes or history or how an airplane flies. It was about what the metaphor of flight symbolizes to everybody. Because not everybody likes airplanes, but in the physical, Everyone can relate to reaching for the sky, reaching for the stars. That's got nothing to do with airplanes. When business waned and the exhibit closed, Kermit did not take this as a defeat. In fact, he saw it as the curtain falling on Act Two. 
With this massive book full of big ideas, Kermit sees the hope of not only his own success, but the hope of all those who will pass through his doors. He wants not just one park, but three parks dedicated to the past, the present, and the future. And the cool part about it is, I can tell the same timeless human story that's common to the human experience from three different perspectives of time. And the cool part about it is, I don't have to upgrade or change my, my attraction element. I mean, at some point we would or whatever, you know. Uh, but the reality is, or find a better story. But we only ever focus on something common to the human experience. And I don't have to change it. Because when you come back the next time, you will have changed and you'll see it from a different perspective. Mm -hmm. From Fantasy of Flight, Kermit hopes the history of aerospace can be a common uniting factor for the entire human experience. He is confident that anyone who comes here will agree. He put Gabrielle and I in an airplane, a biplane with two seats. Gabrielle sat in the front and I in the back. He gave us each an older MP3 player and gave us headphones. He asked us to push play at the same time and we did. What we heard was a short radio play. The listener is the main character. We are members of the famous battalion of female Soviet pilots called the Night Witches. During the Second World War, they'd roar through the darkness and blast German planes out of the sky. Kermit is our narrator. There is a trust here that this man is guiding you on an adventure, and maybe, when you're done, you will have learned something about the world as well as yourself. There is a confidence to the way he speaks, a knowledge about his own place in the world. There's this quote that kind of sticks out in my mind that Kermit said, and he's like, when I first got here, I found myself in the middle of nowhere, but now I find myself in the middle of everything. And that's sort of how it is when you learn about what he's trying to do and when you get to know him as a person. Everyone in his circle conveys a similar thought, that Kermit is supportive and open, generous, helpful, intelligent, inspiring. One of them said, Orlampa is a phenomenon, a place where amazing things can happen. But following our afternoon in the old hangars, with the planes towering over us and sunlight creeping through the high windows, the unifying factor of what makes this place unique is not its location. It's Kermit. And all I'm here to do, I'm not in the airplane museum business, I'm not in the, the, uh, the theme park business, I'm not in the aviation business, I'm not in the museum business. As a metaphor, I'm in the travel business for the journey of life. And as a travel agent, I'm not here to tell you where to travel. For me to be successful, I'm only here to encourage you to continue traveling. It's unclear when the new attraction of Orlampa will open, but Kermit has hopes. In our time together, he expressed a constant sense of confidence. Every idea he tells us is supported by the same certainty he brings to everything. Many, many people have come to Florida with huge, nigh-impossible ideas. Kermit doesn't see how he is any different. In the next few years, this exit off the interstate, Exit 44, far beyond the sprawls of the city it is named for, the new fantasy of flight might be Kermit's greatest success of all. He has devoted himself to dozens of different ideas, and many have fallen aside, lost their luster, or been taken away. Not every opportunity 
could come to fruition. But Kermit Weeks has struck gold before. Act 3 is just on the horizon. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes, our Season 3 finale. If you have not done so already, you have to go to the Tampa Bay Times and read Gabrielle Khaleesi's incredible companion piece to this episode. You can find the link to that at the very top of the description below. I am so glad that you have spent this season with me, especially with everything going on in the world. If this is your first episode, welcome. It means the world to me that you are here. There are some really amazing episodes and stories waiting for you in the back catalog. You really should check those out. If you're looking for a good place to jump in, you should check out my other episodes with Gabrielle, including my interview with her from December and our chat about the Florida State Fair from February. She is one of the best writers I know, and if you can, you should subscribe to the Tampa Bay Times to support the work of her and her co-workers who do amazing things every single day. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review below. I would love to hear what you love about this show, especially as I prepare the fourth season for this summer. Your feelings can influence what kind of stories get told in the coming months. You can find the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod. You can send me an email at WFMPod at gmail.com, and you can follow my personal account at WFMNick on Twitter. Thank you to Lauren Nix for the photography used on the social media channels. She is one of the best, and I'm so grateful for the work we get to do together. I very much look forward to more once we're on the other side of all this. If you're looking for a photographer, she's the one to call. You can, of course, follow her Instagram at lauren.nix.photo. Her last name is spelt N-I-X. All the music used in this episode is from Lobo Loco. There's a link below where you can listen to more of their weird, wonderful tunes. Next week is the Season 3 Epilogue, a wrap-up of some of my favorite stories from the last few months, including a little bonus tale about JFK and Frank Sinatra. Until then, I'm Nick D'Alessandro. Be good to yourself. Be good to others. Stay inside if you can. And please, drink more water. Have a good week. Thank you.